So today I'd like to talk, is this loud enough? Sounds very loud. (laughs) I'll try not to scare myself. (laughs) Today I'd like to talk about what we're doing in our practice in the sense of why are we practicing? What is this practice really about? What is this path really about? Or what the hell are we doing here? As I'm sure many of you know, there's many different um, ways of talking about the path and the spiritual journey. Even within the Buddhist tradition, there's (coughs) dozens of perspectives on what awakening is, the journey to be free, to open the heart. And as the Dharma has come to the West, it's taken on a a somewhat different flavor and tone of what does it mean to be a fully awake human being. Traditionally, if we go to the text and we listen to the words of the Buddha, awakening is the uh, uprooting and purifying of the forces of grasping, of greed, of hatred, of our um, delusion (coughs) around the sense of self, around the sense of our separateness. And it also... um, he also speaks to the full eradication of suffering. Quite a radical notion. Particularly radical given the amount of suffering that's in this world uh, seems to be growing or we seem to be more apparent of the extent of suffering. What does that mean? What would that look like to have a life free of suffering? Often these questions just lead to more questions uh, and not so many answers. So as I'm speaking, I really would like you to reflect on why you practice. What is it you wish for and aspire to in your life, in your practice? Uh, Is the ideal of awakening, of freedom, of liberation, of the heart's release, uh, is that real for you? Is that what you aspire to? Or what is it that you practice and study and meditate and cultivate the heart? Where do you see that going, if anywhere? One couple of ways that I have found helpful of having an overview of the path. Um, One in particular that comes from a Korean master called Chinul, 11th century Zen master, who wrote a book called Sudden Awakening, Gradual Cultivation, which speaks a lot to me and my experience and the experience of others of the possibility of sudden awakening. You know, we all um, have had moments where we're bumbling along in our lives and suddenly uh, a moment of clarity, of clear seeing, of insight, of the heart and mind being feeling particularly free arises. Or we see something very deeply for the first time. Maybe that we're not as separate as we think we are. That perhaps we're more than just this body and mind. 
So we have these moments of illumination. Emily Dickinson had this lovely line. She said, "'Tis revelation that not waits, but our unfurnished eyes." Revelation isn't waiting. It's our unfurnished eyes, our obscured vision. Anyhow. So we have these moments of depth of understanding and breakthroughs, wherever they may happen, on on retreat, sitting in our lives, in bed. And then we have the work of integrating that into our lives, the gradual cultivation. Another framework for the for the path is a cultivation of the two wings of the bird, of wisdom and compassion. In a way, the sudden awakening is often the moment of wisdom, and the gradual cultivation is often how that permeates through the heart, because usually and hopefully our awakening, our insight, our understanding manifests as a greater sense of compassion greater sense of kindness towards ourselves and others, greater sense of connectedness. I first started practicing in England um, in the early 80s with an English Buddhist group, and I remember once asking to my friend when I was feeling particularly confused about what the hell it was all about, and we were having this discussion, and I said, well, I think it's about, I think Buddhism is about becoming a better person. And he said, is it? And I thought, hmm, maybe it's more than that. <coughs> I had at that time also the awareness of, um, actually, I think it came a little later, the sense of, um, am I just rearranging the furniture in the house or am I doing something much more radical than that in my practice? And what I mean by that is that um, the this is a phrase that goes something like the ego never wants to be present at its own funeral. And yet, it's the, the irony is, you know, the, the egoic structure often brings us to the Dharma, because it's the suffering, the pain. And yet, it also wants to be present at its own awakening. And yet, <laughs> its own awakening is seeing its, its illusory nature. So we have this paradox. I was listening to a talk recently by Hamid, uh, Almas, and he said, um, you know, we have these moments of illumination, often which involve the sense of seeing that the sense of self and the sense of ego is really uh, just a construct, uh, just a sense, just a fabrication in the mind. And we have these openings into, say, a bigger sense of consciousness, cosmic consciousness, unity consciousness, where something where we feel much vaster and connected. And then that passes, as all things do, and we come back to our normal state. 
And then rather than thinking that that was real and now coming back to the, 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 the old story and the fixation on the sense of self, we go, wow, I had this great unity cos- cosmic experience. The ego appropriates every experience that we have rather than seeing, rather than allowing that experience to illuminate the, um, the construct of the self itself. So, so we have, um, if we look at the different Buddhist traditions, we have uh, somewhat of more of the traditional view that the Buddha was teaching, which is the teachings of the path, the teachings of the Eightfold Path, of uh, bringing all of our lives, all of ourselves into line with a greater harmony and wisdom and compassion, beginning with right understanding, understanding the truth of things, um, that also incorporates how we live our life in terms of ethics, our work, our actions in the world with each other, and also uh, the depths of meditation, the depths of awareness, the depths of concentration and mindfulness. One of the problems with the model of the path, as far as I can see, useful as it is as a metaphor for our journey. We are on a spiritual path, and we are a path is something that's been trodden before, which is why it's a clearing, and our very treading of the path makes it easier for others to follow. Yet the way the mind works in its sort of uh, somewhat dualistic nature is it sees us at at a certain point in the path, and the goal or the end of the path being somewhat distance, distant in space and time, and it can seem like we're very far away from that which we're seeking. So that's one perspective. Another perspective is a much more um, present moment perspective, where the, that sense of the path and the goal being very distant somehow drops away because all we have to work with is this moment. So the Buddha posited the ideal of Nibbana, of the release from greed, hatred, and ignorance as the culmination of the spiritual path. Buddha Dasa, a contemporary uh, wonderful teacher in Thailand who died recently, talked about moments of Nibbana since we only have this moment, then a moment that's free of greed, hatred, and delusion is a moment of nibbana. So if we look at this moment right now, and you look at your experience, what is there? What is present? Are you caught in some sense of wanting, some dissatisfaction, some resistance, some aversion? Or is there some sense of ease, not wanting for anything, being quite happy to be here, sense of peace? Is the sense of self quite strong, or is it just not really thinking much about it, just hearing, listening, thinking? So we can, when, we, when we break it down into moments, then 
these somewhat lofty goals seem much more workable. Just like if we say to you, um, be mindful for 45 minutes of walking practice, well, hopeless, forget it. No one's going to be mindful for 45 minutes. If we say, be mindful of this next step, well, as the, uh, the betting odds go up a lot. <laughs> and that's all we have. We, 45 minutes is in some ways not real. We just have this moment's experience. Can we be present for this footstep? This breath, this drinking water, this whatever we're doing. This is the moment we can practice being free or being caught in suffering. When I think about the complete eradication of greed, hatred, and delusion, I feel a little depressed. <laughs> Tell you the truth. <laughs> Given the, given the past experience anyway. If I can just think about this moment, am I caught in, in grasping? Yes, if I am, can I release it? Can I soften? Can I understand it? If I'm caught in resistance, you know, if I'm late driving to the class and I hit traffic, can I work with that moment of constriction? Now, possibly, <coughs> slowly. So if we work moment to moment, then we're unfolding this sense of freedom. I went on a retreat, my first Vipassana retreat, about 10 years ago in India in Bodh Gaya with Christopher Titmus, some of you who may know. And he is a strong advocate of this, um, as most teachers are really, but particularly so, a strong advocate of the importance of the here and now, the importance of waking up uh, in the here and now, of the possibility of waking up right now, not in some distant time, place. And being around somebody who's so passionate about that, I'd been on a, in, a, in a tradition for the seven years, eight years prior to that, of the, the longitudinal model of thinking in some future lifetime, in some eon, some distant universe, I may in fact wake up. And here was somebody saying, right now, liberation is possible. It was quite startling and very inspiring. And my practice, I was first time in India, and for those of you who know, India can sometimes be a very challenging place. It's, we're sleeping on concrete floors with a little straw mat and rats running around and noise, loudspeakers blaring 24 hours a day and wasn't quite what I was used to. And I was having a really hard time with all the noise. It's very noisy there. And he said to me, go stand by the gate. That There's a big monastery grounds. Uh, and he told me to go stand in the noisiest place in the monastery <laughs> and just work with it. So I would practice sitting and walking by the <laughs> gate where all the um, bus stops, the, 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 the buses and the traffic and the loudspeakers and the restaurants and the kids and just a whole wild life going on outside the gate. 
and his encouragement was this you know, this is all we have this is this is this is it so can you be free in this in that which you don't like in that which feels overwhelming and as the days went on i began to feel much more at ease and at peace with that and i f- began to feel less separate began to blame those people outside the gates if only they knew we were doing this very important meditation retreat <laughs> preventing my liberation <laughs> and so I got there's something there's a very deep teaching about it's not somewhere else and it's not somewhere that's very calm and peaceful in the woods <laughs> it's right here in the marketplace right here in our lives just this moment can we be here with equanimity and wisdom or resistance and frustration There's many Zen teachings that um, brought out this sense of the immediacy of sudden awakening. It's been a trend in many schools in Zen and Chan in China. There's a famous passage from Hakuin, famous Zen master, who begins something like, All beings are from the very beginning Buddhas. Without water, no ice. Without human beings, no Buddhas. It's a very radical statement. All beings are from the very beginning Buddhas. Here we are, we're um, aspiring towards um, the ideal being the sense of Buddhahood. Buddha, Buddha means to be awake. So we are from the very beginning awake. That is actually our essence and nature. We all have this innate capacity to be aware, to be awake. In the Tibetan tradition, they give four reasons why we don't recognize this inherent nature of of mind, of awareness, of wakefulness. And one of those reasons is because it's so ordinary. We overlook our ordinary experience, our ordinary awareness, which really is the awareness that gives us the capacity to be awake, we overlook it because it's so ordinary, it's so close to home. There's a wonderful Rumi poem, and Rumi talks a lot about this, as do other teachers. About this notion that the very act of seeking, the very thing that we're seeking, is that which is doing the seeking. if I can find it. He's, he's using the language of God, but you can substitute the word God for truth. I am always, I am with you always means when you look for God, God is in the look of your eyes, in the thought of looking nearer to you than yourself. 
So when you look for truth, truth is in the look of your eyes. The very thing we're seeking is the very thing that's doing the seeking. Somewhat paradoxical. But the essence of our happiness and well-being really lies within ourselves right here and now. Not in some experience, not in some thing, because all of that is impermanent, all of that is transitory. We're seeking for that which isn't transitory, which isn't changing. There's another poem that speaks to this by a, a Chinese Zen master. If you look for the truth outside of yourself, it gets further and further away. Today, walking alone, I meet him everywhere I step. He is the same as me, yet I am not him. Only if you understand it in this way will you merge with the way things are. And this kind of teaching isn't really speaking to our rational intellectual minds, because our minds go, well, what the hell does that mean? If you look for the truth outside of yourself, it gets further and further away. If we listen quietly, something usually resonates in our heart with that. There's a wonderful passage from a Mahayana Sutra that goes something like, and this is the words of the Buddha speaking, I gained absolutely nothing from complete and unexcelled enlightenment. I gained absolutely nothing from complete and unexcelled enlightenment. Pretty radical thought. You know, we're thinking that we're going to get something on this journey, right? <laughs> We're hoping for something. We're doing all this meditation for nothing. <laughs> God, if you count up the hours you've been doing this. <laughs> so if this is the words of an awakened sage speaking, gain nothing from an excelled enlightenment, points to the fact that what was gained was already present. Actually, usually... Um, the mind can't help thinking of awakening as getting something. And actually, it's a shedding of something, usually. Mm-hmm. It's a letting go. It's a release. We've all had those times when we've been caught up and fixed on something, some desire, some goal, some person, some experience that's out of our reach. We don't get it, and we're caught in suffering, and then suddenly something allows us to just put it down, to unburden ourselves, to let go. And in that letting go, there's a sense of peace, sense of freedom, sense of ease. It's so easy to get to get caught in the in the thinking, in the belief that our happiness lies in some experience, some thing, some person, some job, some promotion, some financial security. Not to, not to belittle the importance of those things, but it's the belief that that's going to do it creates the desire, the wanting, the longing, the sense of deficiency right now. And when we release that belief, we have more of a chance to settle into feeling at peace and at ease with where we are, with who we are. 
I had the good fortune of studying with a teacher called Punjaji in India in the early 90s, who uh, was a wonderful Advaita Vedanta teacher. Uh, Advaita is, has a lot of philosophical similarities with a lot of um, wisdom teachings of the Buddha. And he was um, like a lot of uh, masters are quite, um, they poke a lot of fun at us. Um, and he would, you know, he would joke about uh, all these people coming, flying from America and from England and Europe and all the way to this very dirty, polluted city in India to sit in a very squashed, hot room with him <laughs> to say, you're already free. You're already, what are you coming here for? You don't need to be here. Why do you need to hear this? You're already free, you're already awake. It's only your belief that you're not free, that you're not, that you're separate, that's causing you suffering. He said it takes a moment, a single moment. He said, give me just a millisecond of a moment and I can show you that you're already free, that your nature in itself is already at peace. And we get caught, we get deluded in thinking that we're not, in thinking that some fleeting desire is going to be, is going to be what brings completion. So in, you know, as, as, as often happens, um, being with somebody who's that awake, it sort of permeates a little, e- a little easier. And, um, and then when people would go home, they would sort of forget. So there was this mantra that would happen because they would go back again, and the mantra would be, I had it, as in when I was with you, I had that understanding, and then I went home and I lost it. <laughs> of course, he would say, well, what's there to lose? So, what's what's to lose is our forgetfulness. So the expression goes, mindfulness is easy, remembering is really hard. do this. You don't have to be that. It's not that difficult to be mindful, is it? Especially in here. But remembering to be awake, to be mindful, is more challenging. So this is really remembering practice. It's also remembering the truth of who and what we are. I spent a lot of time in Lucknow in this very polluted city on these very noisy, polluting uh, tempos. They're like motorbikes with a car stuck on top. Um, noisy, loud, obnoxious things that you drive through a literal blue haze to get to uh, his house because of the pollution. And I'd often be quite anxious to get there because there, there was always traffic jams and India's so chaotic you never knew, knew what would happen and um, and thinking I had to get through all that to get to the teachings, you know, because that's where 
you know, peace and happiness was, and the rest of it wasn't. And after a while, that ride back into the uh, the teachings became as seamless as being with him. That I I got that being on the tempo in the traffic in the pollution was no different than being in his presence. I still had my preferences, <laughs> but I got it that I could be in you know, that sense of freedom and wakefulness isn't dependent on anything, any experience. That it's really possible to um, abide in that anywhere. So, maybe another Zen poem, why not? One of my favorites, you probably know this, Layman Pang, Chinese monk in the 8th century in China. My daily affairs are quite ordinary, but I'm in total harmony with them. I don't hold on to anything and don't reject anything. Nowhere an obstacle or conflict. Who cares about wealth and honor? Even the poorest thing shines. My miraculous power and spiritual activity, drawing wood, sorry, drawing water and carrying wood. My miraculous spiritual power, carrying wood and drawing water. So contemporary, contemporary version would be my miraculous power, driving to the mall and buying groceries. <laughs> It's that ordinary, that simple. If we think we have to get through all that stuff to get to our meditation center, then we've missed the point in a way. When I was in Lucknow, uh, there was a lot of um, Buddhist uh, friends there from various places around the world and Um, when people were hearing these teachings of uh, imminent, the imminence of freedom and awakening, there's a very easy tendency to go, well, I don't need to do all that meditation stuff anymore because you know, I feel free. Mm-hmm. Sounds very enticing. And as much as I valued being with Punjaji, uh, I always had the sense that there was a lot more work to do. And the analogy that we made is that the Buddha used the analogy of the raft, that we use the the raft to get across the river. We use the raft of the Dharma teachings to get across the river of suffering. When you get to the other side, you don't carry the raft on your head because it carried you so well, you let go of the raft. If we let go of the raft too soon, we drown. And I was glad I didn't let go of the raft. So... He was an expression of this tradition of sudden awakening. And yet, the raft, you could say, is also a symbol for how we learn to integrate whatever insights and openings and understandings we have into our lives. Because that's really what matters. What does that mean (coughs) when we're with ourselves and we're having a multiple hindrance attack? (laughs) <laughs> when we're when the kids are shouting and um, 
we just lost some money, our job, uh, we've hit traffic again, or we're late for a meeting. So a good friend is sick and dying. You know, all the thing, all the life's vicissitudes. How does our understanding show up? How do we show up when things aren't going our way? One of the metaphors I like most about the sense of gradual cultivation is the uh, the Zen ox herding pictures. And if you've, most people may be familiar with those. It's a series of eight or ten pictures of um, a farmer losing his ox and into the jungle, goes into the jungle, searching high and low, eventually finds him, has to tame the ox, um, becomes at peace with the ox, and then eventually they come back down into the marketplace. That's the last picture. And so the, the ox is a metaphor for his mind. He's lost his mind. We've all, we all lost our minds. We have to go find it, understand it, tame it. And then we have to come back into our lives and live with that wisdom. In the West, we, we, because of the nature of our lives, we're less going into the jungle. We're more staying in the marketplace and learning to tame the ox and keep selling our vegetables. So it's a slightly different model. You know, the, the traditional Buddhist model is you, in Asia, you go off into the monastery, you do a lot of work on the mind. Here we're not so much doing that. We're much more grounded in the midst of our daily lives and learning how to incorporate these teachings. So we're sort of carving out this very unique road, I think. You know, and another expression of that is, um, you know, the the, the teachings uh, I mentioned earlier of the Eightfold Path, of living ethically, of wisely, of compassionately. Um, these are all models and vehicles for help to, uh, for us to understand how to live in this world, to give some kind of map. And then we have new issues that the Buddha didn't have. He didn't have a laptops and computers that never worked, and um, he wasn't living in a world where it was clear we're destroying ourselves and the earth. He didn't have um, you know, the ecological catastrophes that we have going on right now. You know, we have different challenges. We have a much more uh, deepened sense of global awareness and interconnectedness. And so how we live and how we act and what we do and what we buy and what we consume and what, who we vote for and all have this much vaster impact than people ever had to uh, think about in the context of their Dharma practice and their lives. So we have much greater responsibility of how we, how we live our lives in terms of the impact it has uh, globally. So I asked that question of you to reflect on, maybe this week, today and this week, is... How is your practice manifesting in your life? In what ways does these teachings, meditation, mindfulness, awareness, compassion, wisdom, how is it changing you? How is it how does it actually look in your life? How how does it what does it bring to bear 
on your decisions and your choices and the way you relate. You know, I think if we redid the, the Eightfold Path, it would be a Ninefold Path and there would be, be a section on right relationship. Mm. You know, so much of our lives are involved in relationship with ourselves, with each other, with the planet, um, with our community. That's, that's one of the places that is most apparent in, 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 in how our practice is manifesting. <coughs> and to that, I want to read something by Hafiz, a great Sufi poet. talks on becoming human. Once a great man came to me and spoke for hours about his great visions of God, inverted commas, his great visions of God. He felt he was having. He asked me for confirmation, saying, Are these wondrous dreams and visions true? I replied, How many goats do you have? He looked surprised and said, I'm speaking of sublime visions, and you speak to me of goats? And I spoke again, saying, Yes, brother, and how many do you have? Well, Hafiz, I have 62. And how many wives? Again, he looked surprised and said, I have four. And how many rose bushes in your garden? And how many children? And are your parents still alive? And do you feed the birds in winter? And to all he answered. And then I said, You asked me if I thought your visions were true? I would say that they are if they make you become more human, more kind to every creature and plant that you know. So the usual, not the usual, but... When you take that kind of question to a, to a master, you generally never get the answer you wanted. Mm-hmm. It's like the story I heard of Jack telling when he went to, he'd been in India for a year, went back to his old teacher, Ajahn Chah, and had all these great experiences and visions and illuminations. And so he gaily recounted all these stories and insights. And, and Ajahn Chah looked very sort of nonplussed. And, and Jack said, well, what do you think? He said, oh, it sounds like a lot more things to let go of. (laughs) (laughs) It's ultimately what this practice is about. I love that line in the Tao Te Ching when he talks about returning to the source of the Tao and returning to the source of the truth or understanding you become kind-hearted as a grandmother. Such a beautiful line. So that's clearly where the, um, these two seemingly separate wings of wisdom and compassion come together. Sometimes I think in the West, we see wisdom because of the, so the intellectual philosophical tradition as somewhat this cool, detached, rational, logical removed perspective from the world. In, in Asia, the, the word for mind is actually heart-mind. They don't make that distinction. And so the wisdom that's cultivated through these practices is really heart wisdom. It's really wisdom that, um, you know, I'd say the most, one of the most significant things for me in my practice is seeing how through opening to my own suffering and pain, I'm so much more open to other people's suffering and pain, and the heart just becomes more and more open. Mm 
I, I probably will talk about this next week, but one of the ironies I think about the teachings on the ending of suffering is that actually my experience, and I think everybody's experience, is as we grow older and our, our understanding becomes more um, more rooted, is we open and see to greater and greater degrees the amount of suffering in the world, in ourselves, in our hearts. And out of that, compassion is born. Because we all know that we're all subject to the vicissitudes and vulnerabilities and unpredictabilities of life. And when we, if we can open to that, the heart opens. If we don't open to that, the heart hardens and shuts down. And as we know, it takes a lot to keep the heart open, especially in this world right now. So, I'm coming to the end here. I do want to say I found it very helpful. I've sort of studied with a lot of different teachers and I feel very grateful for that, that I've in, in different parts of the world. And one thing I've learned from that is there's no particular way that this path unfolds. For each person it's different. There's no model of how it looks. And you're always looking for how it looks. You know, we go on retreat and everybody's walking slowly, so we walk very slowly, you know, and we sit very still, and it must, that must be it, you know. And we get, oh, that's just the outer shell. It has nothing to do with waking up. Um, and you hear all these stories of um, enlightened masters who, and I've known personal stories and had experiences myself, where the, how it looked was quite different. My, my teacher, Punjaji, was quite a grumpy old man most of the time when he was at home eating and you know, getting restless with people who were attending him. And despite his luminous wisdom, uh, was also in a human body with a human personality. I had a friend who went to see Nisargadatta several times and got literally thrown out of the room because he didn't want him in there. <laughs> who knows what that's about? You know, so we have this idea, you know, we see these pictures of <coughs> these people and Ramana Maharshi and the great sages. and um, So we, we get this idea how it looks, how it, how, how it, how it should be. And yet, you know, there's a, there's a lot of humanness that we don't see beyond those pictures. Um, So noticing where that where where that where where you get tripped up into thinking how you should be how it should look. <coughs> and for me, I think over the years, what I've, what's been most significant is the very small, subtle changes in my practice and how I relate to myself and my experience in the world. Something as simple as uh, I used to be plagued with a very strong self-judging critic. Now, I know nobody else here has that, but in case you do one day, what it, the, the, the amazing thing about mindfulness practice is how it transforms our relationship to our experience. So I remember one day you know, just being habitually persecuted by that 
and then suddenly realizing, oh, it's just a thought. It's just a thought. It's not the truth. It's not who I am. It's just an old perspective on who I am. Very teeny little shift in consciousness, but huge in terms of how free I feel when we no longer relate to our judging thoughts as real. It's just, oh, it's just a thought. I remember being on a long retreat at IMS in, in Barry and had a lot of physical pain. Um, and again, a very subtle shift in consciousness from, oh my God, my knee's hurting, I'm going to end up in hospital, why am I doing this practice, I should leave the retreat, don't they know how bad it is for us, we should sit in chairs, my God, <laughs> to, oh, physical sensation, tingling, burning, pain, not who I am, just what's happening in the knee, in the body. Again, not a, not a radical light show, just, oh, I can be with that. It's going to change. Oh, it is changing. Oh, it's impermanent. Oh, that's tolerable. Not ultimately who I am. Or those times when we are driving in traffic or whatever it is that's your little um, pet irritation. Mine, mine can be traffic. Um, hitting the traffic jam. Get me late for the meeting. And the reaction, the the tension, the frustration, and then, oh, then somehow awareness sees all of that. Oh, right. Just reactivity. Just aversion. Fear, anxiety. Oh. And it suddenly shifts from, oh my God, my life's crumbling, to, oh, I'm going to be late. You know, very small shifts in our perception, yet significant in terms of the well-being that we have. Or the movement from, um, I remember clearly something shifted when I caught myself falling in public, tripping over the stones, the paving stones in, in, in England, and laughing instead of going, oh my God, what a klutz, oh my God, did anybody see? To, oh, just what bodies do, they fall over less identification with the sense of self, of how, who I am, how I look, how I should be cool, and da, 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 to, oh, fell over. How amusing. <laughs> <laughs> to um, catching myself, beating myself up, and instead of agreeing with that or buying into that, feeling the pain of it. Feeling the pain of how cruelly we treat ourselves, dropping into the heart, feeling the suffering, feeling and, and feeling the pain of that, allowing the compassion to arise. It's a radical shift. And we all give ourselves a hard time. I don't know anybody who doesn't. We're our, wor- we're our worst friend a lot of the time when we drop into the heart and feel the pain of that, it allows a different relationship. So, these are just a couple of snapshots on models of the path. 
the model of gradual path of cultivation. And I haven't really so much talked about that in detail, the path of sudden awakening and how we learn to integrate that. Any questions or comments, please? Can you say your name before you speak so I can get a sense of who you are? My name is David. Um, yesterday, I was actually not very far from here. I was going with a family of friends to have a whole day. We've planned this for a while to go to the ocean, have a vacation. And on one of the roads right here, I just turned a corner and suddenly found a car coming in the other direction of my lane. It was right there. There was no preparation. There was no anything. Mm. And um, what was interesting to me was to be present with my own response. I was actually quite blown away. Mm. I wasn't angry. I wasn't frightened. I thought to myself, I have a new relationship in the second with somebody who I've never planned to have a relationship with. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and um, my part of it was to see what room there was on my right. <laughs> and her part of it was to do whatever she was going to do. And what was interesting is there was a split second, which, for whatever reason, I mean, it was quite clear to me she was, <laughs> you know, it was completely double yellow line, so she was really in a hurry. And um, she looked up, and she saw me. She totally saw me. And I was only too grateful. And then she, at the very last second, in, in a second I thought that was beyond the last second, hmm. pulled back. There happened to be a space. She pulled back. Hmm. And we past each other, and I was filled with enormous gratitude. Mm. The other piece for me, which I found interesting, mm. was how much I felt that could have been me. I, I mean, I've never actually done that, but why not? I could have had a moment of losing it, mm -hmm. and it entered some part of me so that later, when I myself was going to move into traffic, and I don't know why I did it, I just looked to see what was going on right beside me. And sure enough, there was a bicyclist right there. Mm. And it so happened I didn't get to have that relationship either. Huh. <laughs> so in a way, it was two missed relationships. And what that was about for me, frankly, was that all of my sitting, it just made, I understood it, huh. all the sitting, all of the not doing came into play in that second. Mm. Yeah. And it was all connected. Huh. And it was connecting in a way I could never, ever understand or plan for or prepare for or anything. Mm -hmm. mm, beautiful. Yeah, we never know what seeds we're planting, how they will ripen. Mm. Thank you. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing how the practice unfolds in ways we never know. And that, in a really profound way, the part for me that is the most important is how little it really has to do with me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. That experience of the not me mm -hmm. is the thing that, you know, the only thing that's available is to open up to that. There isn't really right. anything else possible. Right. 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 It's moments like that you really see that, yeah, it's not about us directing the show. Right. Or 
right? It's all happening spontaneously by itself. Most of the time we live in the illusion that we're doing it, but actually it's just doing itself. Yeah. Rosemary, what strikes me about that, David, is that you were uh, able to stay awake for it. As, as you were telling the story, I was putting myself in your place and imagining and thinking how much I would just want to close down, how much the fear would just overwhelm me, and I would just want to sort of check out, and, <laughs> and that you could, you could just stay there and, and be awake and be aware and... and just be there. <laughs> and the, the thing for me, though, was, as I hear you saying that, how I wish I could claim any of that. <laughs> my real experience is, I don't know how to say it, there was no me there to do any of those things. Mm. And yes. so what yeah. it is for me in a way that I cannot comprehend is this intense feeling of um, humbleness around that there is no way for me to get there. Just as if, and what I really believe, is that you really cannot know, you really cannot know what you would or would not do in that situation. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the richness of it, mm -hmm. is that we mm -hmm. can't know. Mm -hmm. And in a way, it's a relief. Mm -hmm. It is. Because mm -hmm. <coughs> I couldn't do it. And I just honestly believe you couldn't really do it either. <laughs> but, but it's possible. It remains a possibility. Mm -hmm. Let me think of it. Mm -hmm. Reminds me of being on the... I was on a plane flying back from England, and uh, we'd been flying about 15 minutes, and there was quite a loud, <coughs> sound like an explosion, kind of a low boom. And that thought in the mind of, oh, dear. And the, the captain came on and said, oh, we've had engine failure. We were going to fly back to England. We're going to dump our fuel, emergency landing. And again, you never know what's going to arise. And imagine what would arise would be fear and panic, and oh my God, and certainly the, he the airline stewardess was, <laughs> everything's, okay, everything's okay, we'll begin, oh look, there's the fuel, oh look. <laughs> don't panic, don't panic. And I felt an incredible sense of calm, and just a sense of surrender, which of course was fortunate, because what else can you do on a plane 30,000 feet? Um, but you never know when, what's going to come through, and how it's going to come through. And then those of you who saw the Ram Dass film, he had very interesting self-disclosure. where He said when he had the, his heart attack, his uh, stroke, um, he didn't think of God. And he said he was most humbled and, um, yeah, a little in awe that in that moment, which sort of is the preparation in some ways of our practice, the moment of death, that he didn't think of God, and that was very humbling for him. So we never know what's going to arise in that moment. Please. Yeah, what I, uh, my name is Shelley, um, and what I had to share um, dovetails into that really nicely. Um, almost two years ago, um, my husband and stepson and dog and I were in an accident where... Um, because traffic was real stop and go on the freeway, um, 
my husband um, hit the brakes and the brakes locked up and our car slid into the back of this pickup truck. And what I wanted was to be able to just go, it's okay, and think of God. And instead, I'm screaming, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. <laughs> so I guess my prayer is that I never have to experience that again. But if I do, that I can be in a different mindset, that I can be where David was. That's where I would like to be. Mm-hmm. Because it was very distressing to know that it was going to happen and to have the airbags explode in our faces. Mm-hmm. Um and then to get burned by the chemicals from the airbags. And the whole thing was really distressful. Um, and yet, in a way, I was so grateful because the injuries were so minimal. Without the airbags, we could have been really, really seriously injured. So, you know, it, at the end of it, I was just grateful that, that nothing more had happened. The car was total, but we were really okay. No broken bones or anything. So, um, but I just, you know, you, you, you hope. Um, that all the stuff that you've been doing will come out at these moments, and it doesn't always. Mm. But what's interesting about that experience is that the awareness maintains itself through all of that. Mm -hmm. Like even though you're freaking out, Mm -hmm. you have the awareness that that was happening. Mm -hmm. That's what's amazing to tune into. We often overlook that is that the awareness was still holding that experience even though you were identified in the middle of it, some part of you was able to stand back and watch that. Otherwise, you couldn't recount it like you did. I just want you to reflect on that, that even in the midst of the the place that we're most caught, there's some awareness of it. And that's ultimately what our refuge is. So it's not necessarily thinking that it has to be like David's experience, because it won't be, you know. Um, can we be freaking out in the, can we be in fear and rest in the knowing of that that's actually what's key and it's not what we do even though it's wonderful if that happens it's more the knowing of that oh there's somebody on, on my side of the road shit <laughs> can we be aware of that you know it's a natural physiological response to be afraid when you're slamming into the back of a truck. Can we hold, and just like we're learning to hold all of our experience, can we hold that in awareness with compassion? That's the shift that's more key than the movement from your experience to David's. Do you see what I'm getting at? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So not to judge ourselves for how we act. You know, because we all, you know, it's natural. Yeah. Thanks. I also, it seems like we're having a Rashomon commentary. A Rashomon? Rashomon. Rashomon. Like everybody's having the same, different experiences of, of this same type of thing. It's uh-huh. a famous movie. Okay. Where it's told from different points oh, of view. That's interesting. Um, <coughs> I also was uh, in an accident where, uh, this was many years ago, where a car came across, actually, it was a divided highway and was coming straight at me and um, I completely relaxed I had this transcendent moment it was just a second and he uh, he hit behind the driver's seat for some I won't go into all the reasons of why that happened because there was a little lane a little turn lane but 
and then he left to see the accident. And I was perfect, perfectly calm, relaxed. Oh, he's going to kill me. Oh, well, yeah. But, here's the but, which is an interesting thing. After that, apparently the fear was in my body. Sure. I spent 25 years working with the bodily reaction mm -hmm. which came after that, mm -hmm. which was completely not even in my consciousness. I was feeling myself letting go completely in that moment. So, so here's that moment, and then here's all these other moments, and they're all true. I yeah. Guess it's, uh, yeah. No, it's a good point. And it's, it is true that, so, you know, it's when animals... <clears throat> I've been studying a lot of Peter Levine's work, who does a lot of work on trauma, and he did a lot of research on animals, understanding why, they, why say, an impala living on the plains of Africa, who's always, um, who always has, say, a pack of lions on the periphery, why they're not always horrendously stressed out. You know, because if we had a pack of lions living on the periphery, we would be pretty freaked out. <laughs> but they're able to discharge the distress through shaking and moving the body. And, and when, say, an impala gets caught by a lion, often the lion doesn't kill it, they just catch it. And the impala will feign dead as a way of both, I mean, you can't escape the, lines of a, the, the, the jaws of a lion, but in that complete state of um, relaxation, the lion thinks it's, it's killed its prey and often lets, will be, have a moment of inattentiveness and the impala will run away. So we have that too, and often when we're in a life-threatening situation, what gets flooded through the body is some kind of dopamine response where we feel that great sense of calm. And it's totally not up to us whether that happens or not. Sometimes it does, like it did for me on the plane. I can't know whether that was purely in my physical response or years of practice or both. As you say, sometimes that happens, and yet the body still has to deal with the fear that can take years to process. So it's clearly out of our hands what happens. It's, and so the wisdom comes in how we relate to the whole thing, in the moment, during, after, how we process, how we let go, how we hold ourselves with kindness. That's always, I, that people always t often talk about that. That sense of, well, he's going to kill me. I have enough time to review my life and think about whatever. <laughs> and then it comes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? Anybody have any non-car experiences? <laughs> <laughs> I know we drive a lot in America, but <laughs> and it's fine. You were talking about traffic a lot. I did talk about traffic a lot. It's the <laughs> Bay Area phenomena. What can I say? Inspired us. Changing topic, I'm Joe. Um, uh, could you speak on it, like the relative usefulness of going on retreat versus daily practice? Mm. And I, I, I practiced for a number of years, been mm. on a few retreats, and didn't find any temporary change and went mm. back there. So I'm just wondering uh, whether I should go on another one. Mm. Uh, maybe he could speak to mm. relative mm -hmm. usefulness of those mm -hmm. Yeah. How, how long have you sat? What, what time length of retreat did you sit? Just out of interest. For uh, about four days. Mm -hmm. I've done that twice. Mm -hmm. 
I have a little bias because I spent many years probably of my life sitting on retreats. <laughs> so um, I think you know it's a big subject, and I could spend a whole day on it. But I think the main thing about sitting on retreats, and certainly a longer retreat, say I would say recommend you sat a seven day since you've done a couple of four days, just. What happens on a retreat is kind of like what happens in a sit, that there's an initial phase. We kind of settle in, a little restless and dull, and you know we sort of have the momentum of our lives come into the retreat. And then we sort of, the retreat form and silence and sitting allows the mind and body to settle. And so there's sort of a, usually a middle period where we can drop a little more deeply into silence ourselves, the practice, mindfulness, usually a greater sense of clarity. And then there's a sort of a, a leaving phase where we sort of get ready to go back into our lives and so we get a little more restless. So in a way, the longer the retreat, the, the long, and it's not, it's not at all linear like this, but there's a sort of a flow that the longer the time sitting, the greater time you have in the middle period for the most part where the mind and body is a lot stiller, calmer, clearer. We sort of really embody what this practice is about. Because I think in the midst of our daily lives, as useful as this practice is, it's often um, poking holes or filling up the holes in the dam of the chaos, restlessness, busyness. Um, And when we take time out of our lives, our roles, our identities, we drop more into just a, in some ways, a deeper impersonal sense of who we are and what life is about and what we're doing and what this mind is about. And in the silence and the stillness, uh, we usually do see clearer about ourselves and about our suffering and what's causing our suffering, how we can be a little more free. So there's great value to that. Um, It's hard to pinpoint what is generally not necessarily a causal relationship. Oh, I did this retreat and now I'm... Ta-da! You know, it's often more subtle than that. So um, if, the, if the interest is there, then I'd say follow the interest. Um, and experiment with it. See what length of time you feel drawn towards. See what difference it makes if you sit a longer retreat, maybe a 10-day retreat. If you have the time and resources, uh, they're invaluable, for sure. And it's a real gift to yourself. You know, take time away from our lives and ourselves and our roles and our busyness, our doingness, and just to drop into just doing nothing, you know, just sitting and walking and just being. It's such a, you know, there's many people here who've just come off retreat and just sat, come off a couple of months, and two months. Two months. Mm-hmm. Sandy just come off a month. Um, you know, talk to people who've, talk to people who've sat longer retreats and, and, and you know, See what you know, and other people. I'm sure I know. See many faces of people here have sat lots. Um, yeah. Um, but if the if the desire is a desire there to sit, or just a curiosity, or you're not sure. Well, both. Both. Yeah. I don't yeah. know what that would be like. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. So. In, and there's usually some fe- some fear or some trepidation. Yeah. You know, what's going to happen? Am I going to lose myself or is it going to be hard, you know, and, you know, if your life's up and down, guaranteed life retreat will be up and down. Um, 
sometimes blissful, sometimes difficult, you know, the whole catastrophe. Um, but invaluable, you know, and every religious tradition has retreats as one of its sources, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist, Hindu. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I would definitely... You know, I, I hate there's a retreat center very close by. <laughs> Here we have a program. <laughs> All right, thanks. For those of us who were late who didn't hear, could you give us your name? Mark Coleman. Thank you. That was my question. Okay. So we are at 11. I think we're at 11. Is this clock right? Any last questions before? I'm sitting in for Sylvia for this week and next week. Okay. Yeah. I live locally. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.